and welcome to Horus Heretics. I'm William. I'm Neil. I very nearly said I'm Neil there. <laughs> I, I, I noticed like there was a short period of time where you were just just confirming with yourself. I was like, which one am I again? Yeah. You came up, uh, you came up right. I know I know which host we all want to be. <laughs> Shut up. Um Okay, so today we are on a episode number that I don't remember, but we are starting to discuss A Thousand Sons, which is one that we've been kind of hyping for a while now. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this for for a little while. Today we're looking at A Thousand Sons, and the thing to note before we get started is we had email from a listener, in part was referring to this book. Neil, do you remember what the listener said yeah it was from uh, Darius or Darius um, I won't say his last name um, he didn't give me permission to use it so I, I don't know what to do in these circumstances but he said that there was a specific line that um, he was looking forward to us reaching it's fairly near the start and I think you mentioned that you had one in mind and I I know what it is like he didn't mention it but there can only, there are a lot of good lines but there is only one really special line i think i know what agree? it is but uh, i i thought there were some really real belters in here but i think based on just if he's listened to our other episodes i i know what he might be referring to i think so uh yeah i, ha- I have an idea of what it might be but yeah let's see if we come to the same conclusion anyway so but with that we should probably dive into uh the book and <clears throat> i'm just looking at my notes so i read this one on Obviously, we're in lockdown. I read this one on uh, my phone on the Kindle app, and which I was expecting to not enjoy, but I actually really enjoyed it um, because I could take notes much more easily. Um, and then I also found out about the feature where you can put, you can yeah. take quotes and put them in kind of like uh, a few like um, shitty Instagram filter is what yeah, I would. Say like sort of inspirational quote you know formats basically yeah, <laughs> so yeah. i sent you one that said <laughs> phosis to car grunted and carved spirals in the salt with his thoughts <laughs> yes one of the first lines of the book i think i was like reading that just like oh this is a solid start so but let's actually not just pick out random lines and try to give some context where to uh what that, the hell is going that's on that's, in this a, story. that's a good plan and I'll rely on you to do that but I have a lot of quotes that I want to like, <laughs> okay. read out verbatim okay so as you could probably derive from the title this book is about the thousand sons um, who we know a bit about from some references in previous books where they like to be in pyramids um, they have collections of ornate objects they're, they're massively yeah they're massively into magic um, which I really enjoyed about this book, but we'll get on to all of that. Um, yeah, they're they're heavily Egyptian influenced, apart from their Primarch, who's called Magnus, which doesn't seem to fit the the gimmick. But yeah, sometimes yeah, the gimmick can't be perfect, you know. Heavily Egyptian influenced. Um, anyway, we start off, and they are on a planet, uh, the name of which I have helpfully forgotten. But um, they these are good notes. <laughs> Um, they are yes okay that um they're on this planet which is which is technically they shouldn't according to the sort of normal procedures of the crusade they shouldn't really be there because it's uh it's already compliant 
and they've um, been they've also been called away to make war at, at some other place in the, in yeah, the galaxy in, in the arc reach cluster where the um the space wolves are wanting their help there but uh they are on this planet because magnus uh, wants to investigate something that is underneath a huge black mountain that kind of looks like it's man-made and like full of uh geometrical uh perfection almost that that everybody who walks past it knows it to be man-made and almost impossible to exist yeah so they're kind of they're sort of on a camp nearby this and they're they're having some communications with the local people who I think they all wear masks or most of them wear masks they all um, all wear like mirror masks and even even when uh, having sex they wear mirrored masks so they, they're having some communications with them they know there's like they regard this mountain as having a sacred meaning and generally speaking um the space marines aren't allowed to go past a certain sort of ceremonial point that's right and uh, magnus sort of agrees on the legion's behalf and, and orders them i'll go on with you know, as the representative with the, the local shamans and elders, uh, you yeah. all stay beh- behind this line, basically. And that doesn't sit well with many of the characters, all of which are great characters. Yeah, so let's get into the characters. So like, the first thing to note about this is, so we're back to having some remembrancers on board for oh, this, right, like we yeah. were with some of the early books. And uh, obviously we've got, we're introduced to various members of the Thousand Sons. And so if you think back to an earlier book that we liked, uh, the, the, the first Archangels one, where there was a whole big storyline point to that was that um, one of the main characters was finding out about magic powers. Um, in this book, <laughs> pretty much every single fucking character is a full-on like warlock, basically. You a know what I mean? full-on like, magician. And they're like... Yeah. What's your magic ability? Oh, my magic ability is this. Really, that's so fascinating. My magic ability is so different. Isn't magic wonderful? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. But like, it's it's laid out in the first like few paragraphs, and I was just like, well, fine. Like, I'm I'm actually totally okay with them just doing it because I I don't want magic described in every single book. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like yeah. it's like Batman's origin story. We all know it. Let's just forget about it and move on and they um even it turns out even the remembrancers that are there with them have emergent magic powers yeah basically it's meant um, but w- one really funny aspect of this is this <laughs> led to a really funny situation where like um there's just some some like chat about i can't remember the space marines like being able to like the notion that one of them notices that another space marine has sensed someone's emotions and he immediately assume, assumes sensing an emotion must be the use of a psychic power. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was really yeah. fun. I think we should start um like talking about some of the characters but well no I'll 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 keep this line until we we name a few more people. You've already named m- one of my favorite names in the entire series, Phosis Takar. He <laughs> That's is, a good one. He's a bit angry. He's a bit bit mad he's a, a space marine um, yeah. and then there's Ajek Araman who is uh, the main character I would I would say in this book yeah. the main space oh, yeah. marine at least we have a, a few more who are I would say lesser characters and we don't need to confuse everybody with names so I think it's important to explain that 
all these magic powers they have, it's not just a, a free-for-all. There's like the the Thousand Suns are kind of divided up and I can't remember what word they use for it, but kind of different different kind of schools of magic. Within. They explicitly call them cults. Cults, right. Um, they've got uh, different cults within the Thousand Suns specialise in different areas. So uh, Ariman, who's the main character, he's he's in the Corvidae um, and they are specialised in kind of reaching into the warp or what they call the Great Ocean to try and discern the future. And then there's like, I think the Pavoni was it, one of the other main characters in the Pavoni and they can kind of like warp flesh kind of, you know, or alter. I think uh, that alter sort of the, the uh, biomechanics uh, of, of the body. And it's mentioned yeah. that they use it to, to so that they can like control body temperature when it's hot and cold, but also can use it as a weapon on others. Yeah, and like they can all, to an extent, or read auras, I think, or read the auras of, you know, other... Yeah. I, I, I don't, don't worry like they can all burst your head with lightning that's <laughs> you know that's the bottom tier um, um, they, they can all do that but they, they they do have their own sort of shtick and and there's one that's like psychic more just straightforwardly can read other people's thoughts yes um rather than read the future like uh like Ariman and his crew and there's also the 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 pyri or do they just do fire uh i think uh i think it's it's only a little bit less boring than that i think it's just they're (laughs) mad for war (laughs) yeah so so all these different um groups uh they based on the sort of flow of the warp or something they sort of rise and fall in prominence like their power grows or or shrinks according to the winds of the warp or something like that and at the start of this book Ariman's Corvidae that he's part of are kind of low down in the pecking order and the Pyri are, are high. In the in, ascendancy. In the ascendancy, yeah. And then, so the the, the three remembrancers, or one's called Lemuel, he's sort of has an emerging power to sense auras uh, very strongly. There's one called uh, uh, Camille Shivani. Camille Shivani and Callista Eris was the other one, yeah. And I, I think Camille is she's the one that she's like an archaeologist, yeah. Um, and she can like touch an object and sort of know its history, basically. And Coesta, she has visions of the future. Like you, I'm not quite sure of. Uh, we've only read half the book, obviously, so I'm not quite sure of the rules of um, the remembrancers. I fear, I think, for Callista. Eris, because whenever you you read a name like Callista Eris, like with links to the classics, you think, oh god, they're gonna they're gonna like recreate the lives of Callisto or Eris, and their figures in Greek mythology. And I'm gonna I haven't read I haven't read on I don't know if you finished this book, but that it doesn't augur well for uh, Callisto or Callista. Please enlighten us, Neil. Not all of us are as classically educated as as you, Chris. Uh, well, I can't. I can't. Callisto uh, was some non-human character. I can't remember. Um, but she, uh, a few different things happened, um, and she was like quite unfortunate. She was uh, transformed into a 
a bear or uh, a wolf of some kind. Can't remember which animal. So that also, I would say, is probably most likely she's going to be turned into a wart monster, don't you think? It's it's the most likely outcome for many <laughs> characters in these books. But yeah, well, hopefully there's not anything. Well, maybe yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe um, I, I'm not digging too deep. But Eris is also a, a, a Greek god of um, uh, disharmony. Yeah, uh, so okay. I, she's just I don't she's doomed essentially. Oh, yeah, I don't much like the I don't much like the chances of um, of uh, Lemuel either because he is pretty much the same character as Carcassy. Would you think? Very similar, yeah, in character anyway. And like, uh, so yeah, I hope their misfortune is more of the warp monster variety than something like genuinely horrible. <laughs> I have to note, as a historical researcher, that um, there was a. <laughs> At one point, Camille discussed her historical method. Oh, sorry, this is Cuesta Eris, a student of history, discussed her kind of methodology. And this is how it's described. Sorry, this is quite long. Cuesta Eris was a student of history, one whose field of expertise was the manner, manner in which knowledge of the past was in, obtained and transmitted. Once in the library aboard the Fotep, she had shown Lemuel holopips of a crumbling text known as the Shiji, a record of the ancient emperor, emperors of a vanished culture of Terra. Callista explained how its factual accuracy had to be questioned, given that its author's intent appeared to be the vilification of the emperor previous to the one he now served. The veracity of any historical text, she explained, could only be interpreted by understanding the writer's intent, style, and bias. Oh, that's some fucking high-level historical methodology right there. That's a, I mean, that's that, a pretty good description. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure the person she was talking to agreed with her, but... <laughs> it was just, but it was just that it was, it was like... Um, the kind of thing that you would in a first year, you know, first year history class, you'd be like, okay, good, you've got the basic idea. But it was just like for someone that's meant to be a trained expert to the extent that they're sent on this expedition yeah. as the sort of leader in their field, it's an incredibly sophomoric <laughs> thing to, to, yeah. to say. Who, but, um, when, where, why? Yeah. These you know are the questions you must ask. <laughs> it's basically saying, hmm, some people write things from a particular perspective about the past. No, uh, no, no, no. Everyone's writing objective truth. It's just yet. fact. It's fact. <laughs> fact spills from their pen. Anyway, we won't get into... That's what history um, is. It's a series of dates and names that all happened in a line. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, the situation basically at the start is Magnus has gone up this mountain. And it's the start of the book. <laughs> they, they, they are starting to worry about him a little bit. And so even though they're not meant to go beyond a certain point, Ariman's like, let's go, um, let's get the Terminators tooled up and go up the mountain. So they do, and then they, they see some kind of ritual going on amongst the local people, and then Magnus emerges as, he's like, he has this thing where he's sort of can be lots of different sizes at once. Yeah, uh, that's, that's mad, like his size changes with his anger, and, and his and aura like can depict all forms of him at the same time. And just something to put a, a little mental note, make a mental note of for later. There's a couple of massive, like Titan kind of statue things that are seemingly like elder Titans. I think uh, we'll get back to that. Um, but they uh, they are towering over this kind of area that they go into. Um, so Magnus comes out, and they expect he's going to be pissed off with them, but he's not all that bothered. Um, <laughs> That's true. Can um, I, I? I wanted to say this line. It's. Um, it's about uh, Callista, 
and I find it absolutely nauseating. Uh, but I just w uh, want to point it out almost by its unusualness in that it, it's stuck out in the book for being nauseating, but it actually is completely unrepresentative of the book, but definitely worth saying. It's a physical description of her. Her green eyes sparkled with amused embarrassment, and Lemuel saw why so many desired her. She had a vulnerability that made men <sighs> alternately want to protect and de or deflower her. Strangely, <sighs> she seemed oblivious to this fact. Like that was an absolute, yeah, cringe. And she's like, she's, yeah, she's, um, she doesn't know her effect on men, but she's coquettishly, oh God, it's absolutely, yeah, it's, just, it's, it's nerd literature. Um, but, and it, it's absolutely terrible. But worse, it's just like women that is just this completely, you know, just reduced to this two-dimensional. Yeah, this like two-dimensional otaku dream. It's absolutely disgusting. But like that line is basically all of that. It didn't. It didn't appear like the, the women characters are treated well. Don't know why. Why that line is there, really. But I, it needed saying anyway. Everyone's back in the the camp together. It's something we haven't yet done a bonus podcast based on our trip to the British Museum, uh, where we picked out some objects that the. Um, thousand sons might like to have in their pyramids so i think it's it might be nice to have a moment of picking out some examples of the fine ornate material culture of the thousand sons mm. so like i've got a line here saying he turned and marched um back into his pavilion retrieving his weapons from a long footlocker of acacia and jade i'm not sure how you say that word acacia but um or he holstered a pistol that was as fine an example of the armourer's art as any crafted by the artificers of Vulcan salamanders. Its flanks plated with golden backswept hawk wings and its gripped textured with a stippled hide. As well as his pistol, he also bore a long hecka staff of ivory with a hooked blade, hooked blade at its end. Its length gold plated and reinforced with blue copper bands. Nice. Any that you picked out? Well, I mean, uh, I, stopping only to say that I appreciate you even gilding the lily even further by the use of the word hooked. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I that. Was actually Don't take that bypass me. <laughs> I, just, I, I just wanted to point out that whenever the, any of the Thousand Sons like, have retreated to their, their own buildings, like to be alone or to be with like, their, their closest fellows, uh, they always have their own pavilion which I think is a very funny way of doing it, but they are pyramid-shaped. Um, <laughs> Magnus is a, a pavilion in the shape of a pyramid of gold and polarised glass. So it's, yeah. that, it's that kind of... You know those sunglasses that douchebags wear? You know? It's <laughs> like highly polarised things that like all the colours of the rainbow. His is a pyramid like that. It's almost, <laughs> almost too much to to credit but of course it is like he, he has to stand out I, I can think of fewer few ways to do it better than that yeah so so basically he can like the pyramid is tra can be transparent or he can make it opaque if they need to have a secret meeting they start sensing that the remembrancers have powers or they kind of know that already they've probably been selected on that basis but they start chatting about trying to actually sort of take them on to as like kind of trainees in using their powers because there's a whole there's things like the enumerations, which is a kind of like meditation thing 
they do to go through levels of the enumerations to reach higher sort of mental states to deal with various kind of magic situations. Yeah, it's like their um, their sort of internal training that allows them to gain self-control and use different magics and stuff. It's kind of like, it's an interesting mishmash of different earth cultures in, in sort of mindfulness and some like Kabbalah stuff and and some in Hindu stuff and it's yeah, all it's, it's kind, there is kind of a Buddhist thing to there definitely definitely but I mean to, it, it's just like a, a grab bag a pick and mix of all different cultures but it's just um, it's an interesting sort of discussion about you know how to how do you depict magic surely just too tedious to go and then he you know fired fire out of his hands or lasers out of his eyes so a lot of books try and give it a, a science or a its own sort of mythology right so i think this bit where Ariman takes them up the mountain to find magnus is where the wine that we're talking about occurs or the or this the section that we're talking about as being a, a good one occurs. it is it is it's when i i think it's um Ariman uh is uh giving some orders to uh some people who are like freaking out Sekhmet, align your humours, ordered Araman, using his mastery of the enumerations to alter his body's internal alchemy. Temper the chol- choleric with the phlegmatic and bring the sanguine to the fore. <laughs> <We're, laughs> I mean, that we've not had, is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, uh, we've not had some really good humour chat for a while. Like, and that, <laughs> that goes all the way back to the first episodes when we first started talking about the humours, but that's the best one we've had for I like to think, some time. Who wrote this book, Graham, Graham McNeil? I yeah. like to think that he read that first line. He didn't write it, did he? Who, it was Dan Abner who wrote that one. He read that first line and he went, I am going to expand upon this. Um, but what like there's so it's dense with meaning this line because Araman is ordering his his company to physically change their internal balancing of their humors now we know that the humors don't that's not how it works but they are physically they are physically controlling that so their their body chemistry does have the four humors in it I think I think that's what this is saying yeah, because he's he's doing it to himself as he orders others. To exactly, do it. and he's like he's giving these orders. This is not a this is not metaphor. This is not like <laughs> pu- push down all your sad thoughts, boys. Think about like killing some folks. He's like, no, bring, put the cooler down, push the the flame down. You need your blood up at this point, boys. Let's get your <laughs> let's get the blood up. No, he is giving them orders to uh, to absolutely do this. It's um, I read it. I instantly knew what Darius was talking about. I was like, that's the line. Darius, if you're listening, that is it. I know it is. (laughs) We've said some good ones already. I want to say a few more ones before we finish for the day. But that's it. I I just, uh, incidentally, when looking up this line right now, I spotted another really funny one uh, just before it. So it's it's Ariman. Saying Phosis Takar moved alongside him, and Araman recognized the urge for violence that filled his fellow captain. In his detached state, Araman wondered why he always called Phosis Takar his fellow and never his friend. <laughs> that was really funny. Because he thinks he's a dick. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, fellow, yeah. temper your yeah. collar. 
this is <laughs> um, this is my colleague, not my friend. Um, <laughs> that I've got a line like at this point when they're when they're in the valley with these um, uh, with this shit going on, one of them vomits, and it's an amazing uh, description of vomiting that I just wanted to bring up. His heaving breath flowed like milky smoke from his mouth and he stared in amazement at his stomach's contents. The spattered mass glittered as though the potential of what it had once been longed to reconstitute itself. <laughs> that's I mean, that's, that's a cool mental. idea for a demon, though. Like, if you vomited out a bunch of stuff and then it constituted itself into a demon. Oh. That's a cool idea. There's another bit just before this. I still can't figure this out, and I don't know if I'm just being stupid or right. So, um... So basically, it's talking about the fact. That, so this is again when they're marching up the mountain. It's talking about the fact that they have, or at least one of them has, a thing called a Reaper cannon. Um, oh yeah, like, yeah. Their their official designation was assault cannon, but such a graceless name had the name had none of the power of its former in, in, incarnation. A numero, numerado, numero, numerological study had led the Thousand Sons to keep its previous title, the Reaper Cannon, right? And then it says the Mechanicum had not the wit or understanding to recognize the power of names or the mastery uh, and fear a well-chosen one could instill, right? Now, see if you can explain this to me because I still don't understand it. With six letters, three vowels, and three consonants, the reaper's number was nine. Yeah. I was like, why is it nine? That's 12 things. <laughs> With uh, six letters, three of them are vowels, three are consonants. Where's the nine? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, like, you have to. Of all the numbers you're going to make out of that nonsense, why nine? It could be 12. It could be, <laughs> could be six divided by three is two. Yeah. It could be. It could be any number of things. There's no, <laughs> where are you getting the nine okay, from? Okay, well, you, know? you, you take your six letters. <laughs> there's three of them. Uh, there's three vowels. There's three consonants. That's twelve. Yeah. Then you then you reap it, and it's nine. <laughs> you you let, you let loose the reaper can. <laughs> three of those fuckers go down. <laughs> it's um, you know, you're absolutely right. I didn't pick up on that. I didn't do the simple. Arithmetic, like the author didn't, um, but it makes as much sense as numerology. Yeah, yeah. well, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. You could, I'm sure you know. I'm sure you can make a nine out of that with you know, like a countdown, you know, a countdown fucking board to try and get to nine from that. I'm sure it's easily done. But I'm just saying, it's not like it's not, yeah, it's not like it's the most uh, straightforward thing. Another point I want to make at this point is. How sophisticated do you think, at the time he was writing this book, Graham McNeil's definition of the word grimoire was? Right? <laughs> <laughs> because, because, like, <laughs> go on, yeah. Because I noted uh, around this point that in these books, uh, and also the last book, it seems that I was like, never a book always a grimoire, right? Is what I, the note I made. It seems to be everything's a fucking grimoire just to make it sound mysterious and cool and potentially evil. But then later on, there's like, at some point, there's a really big point made of something being a grimoire specifically. You know what I mean? Like as yeah. in a spell book of some kind. So anyway, I don't know. It's just something... I think, I think it might just be like a book bound in leather. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But uh, later on, I think it is... Old. I think it is at that point, and then later on, the word is sort of, I think, pointedly used to imply that something is, or say that something is a spell book. 
let's make a little bit of progress here. Uh, yeah. th- there's some kind of exposition. Callista has a vision where she sees like this perfect city in her in her dreams or in her sort of headache fueled agony and she sees it destroyed and the only way she can like uh, reduce the pain of of the this vision is to just write down what she's seen at around the same time Camille is excavating uh, what turns out to be a helmet of some unknown species that hasn't aged it's all clearly well it's tens of thousands of years old not clearly i suppose but this is where her ability to like know the provenance of of any item she touches is shown um and she knows that it's like a ten thousand year old species vastly powerful but she even knows like what happened to their empire that something happened and uh, nearly all of um of the species was wiped out in a single day in a single action and it has led to like this kind of species pain of of loss and all this kind of stuff she had visions of uh, dancer warriors a name i think it was elenaria i think might be it and kind of like other discoveries are uh, being made of what look like weapons that haven't aged and stuff like that and it's just a, a little chapter of exposition uh, just kind of letting us know things that will come up again in uh, yeah. later chapters so starting to starting to learn a bit more about what this mysterious thing in the mountain is i can't remember exactly when all this is revealed but yeah some kind of cataclysmic event that they believe there's some terrible power contained underneath the mountain basically they kind of leave they call it like the dead stones or something or like carved stones um on the way up the mountain and they uh, they talk about leaving the dead as a kind of tribute kind of thing to this power to sort of sate it and make it not want to come back and yeah. wreak havoc again and, and in, uh, in fairness to you know what 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 are kind of scoffed at as tribal beliefs in this book um the mountain does eat those dead people like those dead people disappear <laughs> the mountain has eaten them so <laughs> basically they're 100 percent right yes exactly out. um and uh and but magnus is interested in this mountain because he thinks that for no reason yeah yeah i don't know how he comes to this but he is under the impression that there are like loads of shortcuts through the warp under there basically that that don't require ships that uh, and that would result in almost instantaneous travel from from point to point though it's a network um, so it, it needs to be mapped rather than just like a sea that allows you to come in and out at any point. I think the next major thing that happens in the plot is a bunch of space wolves come down, oh, as Callista yes. Eris had kind of predicted, right? And um, they're basically saying, oh, oh, come and fucking join us like we asked you to. Uh, and um, this produces... Yeah, they're full on dicks about it. Like... Um, <laughs> The, there's a the, they're led by Amlody Scarson Scarsonson. Oh yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, so, and he he gives him a mouthful of shit. And uh, so so there's a there's a fair bit of friction as they come down and, and like start demanding that they uh, the Thousand Sons join them and stuff. Um, and Fosus Katar Takar rather um, takes umbrage of this and he steps forward. With a fucking belter of a one-liner, <laughs> <laughs> this is like this is you know this is like 
up there with the, you know, the sort of great Hollywood one-liners. He says, speak thusly again, and I swear by the great ocean I will end you. You know. <laughs> Araman goes back to his pavilion and um, shows that he can leave his body. Oh, yeah. Seemingly, this is the first time we see it in action, I think, but this is how he kind of discerns the future. Um, is he sort of goes into a kind of trance state and enters the warp. Now, we, we, we've had a few discussions about these sort of warp chapters, and you've liked them a lot more than me. I've always said that th- their descriptions aren't very good, and you've said you kind of agree with that, but their strangeness sort of comes through. I thought these were bad again. Uh, I've got a line <laughs> that I thought was terrible. Um, because he's he's uh, there are a lot of warp sharks. Remember, they've appeared before. <laughs> well, that's what I was just going to say. It's like right, so. What we're usually told is that like these monsters are formless and could take any shape, but almost invariably they are sharks. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Like anything that a human can think of, seems to be everybody's greatest fear is a shark. <laughs> anyway, he's attacked by these sharks, and. Um, they're called rapacious conceptual predators that follow oh, the spur of travelers' emotions to devour their bodies of light. Yeah. Mm. It's, uh, yeah, no, I agree. Rapacious <laughs> conceptual predators. Those are sharks, apparently. <laughs> um, uh, so anyway, in the course of this, he kind of, like, so like, like we said before, he's his future seeing powers have been lessened as of late along with everyone all the other people in thousand sons with those powers and so he's, he's kind of trying to get them back and yeah what what's what goes on in this he really pushes himself and gets into a bit of trouble like sort of leaves himself vulnerable to the warp sharks and yeah so um basically um he's going to die and he's really embarrassed by that because he's just been caught off guards by it um but he's saved by this dark shadowy figure who will said was cutting about with the space wolves <laughs> getting <laughs> scottish slang in there that i like um and he's called uther Weirdmake. is that how yeah. how would you say that is that a yeah i think word make or weird make i think yeah both yeah i yeah. didn't really enunciate it in my own head you know but yeah well it's like authority it doesn't work, for, I don't think, for um, the kind of Viking feel. So I thought Uther weird make. Weird make is fine. That's It is weird make. Um, he saves him and they, they meet up, have a chat and find that their views of the warp and stuff, they have different terminology and stuff for um, the use of magic and how they do it and what they do it for. But the underlying themes seem to be extremely similar which i suppose isn't a surprise but it is to these guys and it kind of gives them a bond that the the rest of their fellows don't have yeah so so like the the space wolf guy kind of describes it more in terms of like runes and stuff like that and um and whereas a thousand suns they kind of they sort of see it in a more like they think of it in a more scientific kind of language i guess like um, whereas, like, but also, I would say also f- uh, philosophical as well. Yeah, um, yeah. They they talk about it as a great ocean, and the uh, thousands, or excuse me, the space wolves call it a storm, and deal with it in talismans and fetishes and stuff like that. Yeah, and like so, because the thousand suns—that's really what they're all about—is the quest for knowledge, which reminds me of their 
great placement program that they have with the other <laughs> Space Marines. <laughs> yes. Yes, their Erasmus program. <laughs> <laughs> For budding future academics. <laughs> so it basically talks about, at one point, how seemingly every member of the Thousand Sons, I think, or at least the ones that are maybe going up to a certain level of leadership, get sent on... Interns? <laughs> yeah, sent to, sent to sort of embed themselves with another Legion for a time. And yeah. it describes some of the, like, where they where they went to. And But a li- it's it was a little bit disappointing because all of them were sent to Traitor Legions and they all had the best time. They all made lots of friends. <laughs> they all made lots of contacts. They're still emailing. But one of them was sent to the Space Wolves and he had a terrible time. He just made no friends. He was always he, like alone. He came back early. He doesn't even want to speak about it. Yeah, he doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's it. No, I don't. I didn't like it. I just, just didn't like it. It's just not for me. You know, I, did, I made the right decision. Talking of other legions, there's at some point there's a reference to the ultramarines, and like ultramarines are usually like seen to be like really boring as a chapter to be discussed in the book. But like this actually made really made me want to, really made me want to read a story about the ultramarines set in this sort of heresy period because it talks about how like they try to set up like utopias basically where they have been, and I was like that'd be really interesting for a story instead of like the usual thing is just like. You know, they go and fight the war and then fuck off. Like, you yeah, know, actually, exactly. like reading about a space marine chapter trying to involve itself in the establishment of a, you know, more in the, in, in the sort of setting up of the society and culture after they've conquered a place, it would be quite interesting. Positive colonialism. That's what you want. No, no, no. I'm just saying, like, that, but that's exactly like what it's, it sounds like colonialism, <laughs> you know, like just like uh, going there and, and like, yeah, we've conquered you now and we're going to make everything better. I just think that would make for an interesting story, like how they. Definitely, definitely. Uh, what uh, starts going on in the mountain that makes them go up there again? I've well, y- Yatiri, the head tribal chief, he's up and he's talking with um, one of Araman's men can't remember which one but they're they're having pretty bad badinage back and forth about um their their silly tribal ways and uh, yatiri gives him a bit of a, a history lesson about the titans and about uh, the elohim and uh, the eldar and i think it's I, I don't know too much about the dark eldar but i think it's about um how the eldar create the, the through their um, excesses, they birth uh, Slanesh, the Chaos God, and the creation of the Dark Eldar, um, and that kind of stuff. But I think we'll 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 speak more about that in the second half of the book. I think. Uh, cause yeah, because they're. I mean, they're kind of like like you say about Yatiri. They're kind of get on with them well enough, but they do kind of like you say denigrate as if his their view of this thing as if it's just all superstition and stuff when actually like we've said it turns out to be what yeah we're in 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 seconds uh we'll find out that everything they believe uh, let's let's be real these books are fairly literal <laughs> and so <laughs> anything that is said or thought or even conceived generally happens in the next page but um they see these like oily cracks come out of the rocks and thread through the ground and into the titans and yatiri just is like goes mad at this he's he's like this is the um the devil's return 
So they go back down, they tell Magnus, Magnus who has a little bit more knowledge about what's uh, what's happening in that valley, uh, knows it to be like this is a serious a serious case. So brings up a bunch of warriors and find themselves back in that valley. Um, but the it has like it's changed since they were there last. Um, that kind of harmony, the geometric harmony, is all destroyed. It has kind of left left them feeling ill. Although they can now start feeling their connection to the warp stronger because it had been deadened by these black rocks because of the tribesmen. This is where the tribesmen get one thing wrong, I suppose. Uh, because uh, they think that the the bodies of their dead sort of assuages um, uh, some guilt or some form of debt to the monsters in the in the mountain. They decide they need more bodies and so start sacrificing each other. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, right. Yeah, with blades and that. Uh, again, this is badly described, but if it's like any of the other books, that kind of stupidity and that kind of um, murder in certain areas of warp sensitivity, blah 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 blah, causes barriers to break down, and the titans start moving and killing everything. Yeah, um, can I like, can I just ask what format you read this in? Uh, on did, Kindle. Did you have? Did you get an illustration at this point in your book, no. which was a first for me? On page one three five. I have a big black and white picture of um, the two titans, and I was like, "That's a nice surprise." Um, oh, no. So I don't know why that's not in your version, but um, flipping through it as we speak. Go on with the story. I'll see if I. If yeah. I so yeah, I, if I mean, I'm sure you've guessed this, but the the big titans come to life with the evil evil forces animating them, and there's a a big fight here with uh, the thousand suns and space wolves. What did you think trying... of this fight? Uh, it was a bit. Well, it was yeah. boring. It was really boring. Yeah. Like all that I can think about it was that uh, the titans kill a lot of people, but um, then Magnus uses some magic and destroys them. Yeah, so they think Mag- at one point they think Magnus has been dead, is, is, has been killed. Has been dead. Has been dead. <laughs> has been dead. <laughs> he, um, he, one of the other captains of the Thousand Sons is expending great amounts of psychic energy to try and protect him, but the one of the Titans fires a really big weapon at him and they think he's gone, but he's not. Um, and he wins the fight for them. Uh, Magnus is like, let's get inside the cave. Um where all this evil's coming out of. They do. Uh, they do. <laughs> they fire, they all pile into the cave. And, and that, uh, yeah, it should be said, like, there's some mention here that the thousands of <laughs> You know, I mean, obviously I think the magic in this book is very cool, but, like, generally the way it's been presented before is if this was all viewed quite suspiciously in the Imperium. But they are, like, if you don't like magic, these guys are absolutely rife with magic, as we've said. Like, and uh, but they, there is some indication here that they usually keep it hidden from the from like other legions and stuff. But here they're absolutely popping out fireballs left, right, and center. And, and I mean, uh, we uh, we haven't even mentioned the the, the tutelaries yet. Oh yeah, uh, they are basically their magic familiars. Um, yeah, their versions of a black cat. Um, but they are warp creatures. Yeah. <laughs> um, demons, basically. Yeah, I'm not of... quite sure how they thought that's cool. 
Yeah. So there's all kinds of stuff that, based on our understanding of imperial doctrine that's been presented in every other book, all kinds of stuff that is, you know, likely to get them into trouble, you would think. Um, I think, anyway, I th- yeah, we, we what we haven't mentioned is that in the timeline, this is happening before the heresy, you know, before the first book, essentially. Um, yeah. So uh, a lot of what we've talked about in the books and stuff hasn't happened yet. So I suppose yeah, that yeah. gives them license, but you have to think, not that much license. But they've already been in a bit of trouble for it. Um, yeah, that's that is true, and they do uh, a, a bit of um, uh, leeway is given to them, you know, trying to hide their greater magics uh, and keep those within the legion, I suppose. Um, and then they go inside the cave. They come across a like a massive sinkhole, um, yeah, which has huge pulsing black whispering veins like coming out of it like if you think about just like a big vessel of some kind carrying like black ichor just like spreading out all over the place and uh, yatiri is sort of being tortured uh, by one of these um just like strangling him and uh, like taking over his mind and stuff yeah so yeah it's a big it's a big mass of your classic chaos ethereal tentacles basically yeah. in this big hole this this did lead me to think and i wanted to ask you this question have we have we exhausted human imagination when it comes <laughs> to monstrous things <laughs> because I, I i haven't read anything new and everything that i do read is always so, so archetypal do you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah. and, and th- th- this is that and it's pretty good but when the warp is meant to give you like pure imagination yeah it's always like big pulsating things and lots of eyes Shark, sharks and tentacles and Shark, eyes. sharks um, tentacles eyes yeah exactly um do you know what this really reminded me of like um do you know like just like in video games for like you know the world you're in has been turned corrupted and turned bad and that's indicated by like shit being all over things that wasn't before and then you have to succeed by making that shit go off it like that's that's what it made me think of with all these like black veins specifically whatever the name of the zelda the main zelda game that came out in the gamecube was um i've forgotten uh but that i i it made me think of that just like these sort of you know wispy black lines trailing out of things twilight Um, princess yeah that one yeah um that's what made me think of when it's talking about the veins going into all these things like the stones and stuff like that but anyway yeah yeah, so that's no but like it it could have been any number of of things like uh, yeah exactly black tree thing growing out of the ground and taking over yeah any number of things you're right yeah i mean that being said yeah it was very like generic but um, done pretty well done pretty well yeah done, done pretty well like the whole thing about like so like you say yatiri's been kind of possessed and he's got like black eyes and he's been kind of suspended up by some of these tentacles in the middle of this mass of tentacles and i thought that was quite that image was done quite effectively but yeah um nothing very new <laughs> the, here at the, all. i, I, I want to bring up a few examples of some bad writing here uh, <laughs> okay. I, I, again almost because the writing, as a rule in this book, is actually really good, uh, simple and clear. Yeah. Um, 
except bits about the warp but that's you know I'll, I'll let the authors off because i think that's just a bad concept but um here in this cave there are a few stinkers um but Araman heard only the sibilant whispers drifting from the black mass that rose from the pit. Magnus! Magnus! It seemed to be repeating the Primarch's name, but it was impossible <laughs> to be certain. <laughs> like, no. No, you've written it. It's there. He's you know the name of the Primarch. I know. They could have just not had the Magnus Magnus bit, and that would have been fine. I don't, yeah, I, there, was, there was quite a few bits of that where it's just stuff was overwritten. You know, like, and you just thought, just cut that bit off and you're fine. Yeah. But yeah, well, I think on the whole, it flowed as a book, but there were definitely um, isolated bits like that that stood out. Um, I, so, so inevitably, a big fight happens. They um, chop they chopped the bits, uh, but there's too many of them, and one of them grabs Magnus. And I think this is this is a pretty good summary of all of what goes on here. So this is this line, right? Um a blistering surge of invisible ether erupted from Uthazar in a deafening shriek, burning through the air like the shockwave of a magma bomb. It went unheard by the space wolves, but the tentacles around them dissolved into black fog at its touch and others drew back, recognising his power and wary of him. Uthazar dropped to his knees, head bowed, and bleeding, bleeding etheric light from every joint in his armour. That about sums it up. I That's thought, good. Just like, yeah, nice. He did a good job, that kid. <laughs> um so yeah there's a big a big fight like that goes on um but magnus uh, has been drawn down into the pit by this one of these tentacles and somehow finds himself in like on a, a warp plane of some kind like like a a different level he's not physically there anymore he's in some kind of um a light body type affair where he starts having a conversation with a snake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, before this, this was another one I sent you, just to describe the general mass of tentacles. This was um, another one I sent you uh, using the quote like feature thing on uh, Kindle. <clears throat> it was described as a living wall of snaking darkness. <laughs> That's a good line. It's a good line. Um, and uh, yeah, sorry, carry on. So Magnus is in the warp chatting to the snake. Snake, um, uh, it, it's clear that Magnus has been there before, has dealt with this kind of um, warp being before. Um, and it's sort of alluded to that um, back when he joined his legion, they were having like mutation problems because obviously there's so many warp so many magicians um that that much touch with the warp has led to mutations happening and he through his genetic knowledge um managed to uh, allay this this fear and this problem but we find out that it's actually through some form of uh deal that he's made with a dark force um magnus is like super overconfident and thinks that he's actually bested this evil and therefore won it as a prize but the talking snake says um that it's actually a deal that he's done with a power that he has got no concept of and um he that magnus has no idea about the torment that awaits him yeah and there's some mention here that like the emperor has made 
deals with the power of the warp as well, which you know I think has been mentioned before. But it was interesting just to hear that discussed again. But um, <laughs> this is almost a fourth wall breaking moment, like self-referential to these books um, when uh, the snake, the serpent's talking to him. <laughs> he says, um, "He says, if you will forgive the cliche, I have many names." <laughs> That was really fucking funny because, like, that's like just what all these kind of things always say. I go by many names, but you may call me uh, whatever. Yeah, like, what's your name, serpent? I have many <laughs> names. Well, what is one then? <laughs> he's like, he's like, <laughs> the way he's like, you know. Sorry, I know it's a question, but I just I do have many names. <laughs> um, like I feel I, I feel awkward saying that because every all of us fucking say that, but it's it's just literally true. Um, you, I, if you be... g- if you give me a little bit more of um, context about where I am and stuff, I'll probably be able to remember the one that everyone knows me as here, and <laughs> yeah. we can just we can just go by that one. Anyway, he's called like he's called Coronzon. Yeah, which isn't a very good name. I don't think that's even a demony name, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, Z is a demony letter, I suppose. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, but no more than X. I think X. Mm, X is maybe a sci-fi letter. <laughs> it's an interesting one. Ma- uh, uh, Magnus uh, crushes him with his hand. Uh, the the <laughs> serpent, never one to be bested, says, "You've bested nothing, mate." Uh, <laughs> but 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 he he has. Um, he, he crushes the serpent, which causes all the the veins to disappear, and he reforges the wards around uh, the pit, and has completely sealed it off forever. He says, "Good for him." It's a classic get-out cause for an etheric, you know, or spectral monster. Is like, well, you defeated me, but I am not made of proper matter, so it doesn't really count. Um, <laughs> which is basically what he says here. But also, like, yeah, we've seen it in action films before. Like, he's he's bested him on an astral plane. Like, um, the the serpent had set like a, a, a cunning, mischievous puzzle for him to solve, <laughs> and at the end, he he brains it out with his massive thought powers. And uh, as the uh, the serpent goes, oh, you've bested nothing. Um, he like fades away, and he has been bested. He just didn't want to do it before. That all <laughs> happens again. We've seen it. We've even seen it in this series before. This, I think, this is pretty much the end of the first of the three sections of this book. Um, well, like right off the bat, like just uh, Magnus comes back and says, "Yo, I've, I've, there was a snake down there, but I've covered over the well. It's fine. <laughs> just don't go down there again." Um, <laughs> then um, Amlodi comes up after having like fought and died beside them and like it killed titans and these like massive pulsing veins. He goes, "You'll probably be able to come up to the Ark Reach now, eh? And and um, you know satisfy Russ." And uh, <laughs> Magnus just goes, "Yeah, I suppose, I suppose." Uh, and then for some for whatever reason. Um, these books need to be split up into different books within the book itself. Then we start another one, and they're fighting alongside Russ again. I, I just really like the image of, of like uh, Magnus walking down, walking out of the cave, dusting off his hands, uh, like a like a tradesman that's just finished his job, being like, "It's etheric snake problem, mate. Sorted it though." <laughs> I've I've put a magic cover over it. It'll do for now. <laughs> 
Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, they, they say, yeah, okay, we'll come to the Arc Reach cluster and help you. Um, and they do, and they're, they're just cutting their way through these, like, bird people. And yeah. um, the book takes a lot of time to really let us know that the Thousand Sons, each person cleans their guns differently. They, they make <laughs> yeah. a very special point um, of that because uh, one person disassembles it by hand, another person disassembles it in like a 3D uh, exploded picture view, uh, but then cleans every little bit with a cloth. Other people, they just uh, magic the dirt away, which you'd think everybody would, but... Um, <laughs> but Ariman doesn't approve of using magic to clean your guns. This uh, is, this, he... is sh- this is shit. Uh, he says something like, uh, being an Astartes first, Psyker's second, which is what he says, but not, not at all what he thinks. Like, not... And it's also, it's it's just how all all of these books are about the same fucking thing, is that the lust for power, the lust for um, uh, anything, sort of uh, is a sign of forgetting their like stoic martial values in favor of this new progressive way of thinking. Um, so that is the source of fo- the fall to chaos. The- Wait, another thing here that goes back to another thing that these books are sort of all about, but often don't really address in any detail, that we, you know, we sometimes talk about examples where it does start to push towards discussing this in a more interesting way. Is like, so uh, this is one I've raised, I think, in, in the last book we discussed, about like trying to engage substantially with this, the strangeness from our mortal human's point of view about what it must be like to be a you know, well, in the first instance, a space marine, and the second, even more extreme instance, a, a Primarch amongst them. And, like, so it talks about um, Magnus, you know, that he was, like, crafted by the Emperor, um, and and how, like, just concepts that he can understand that are alien even to his, you know, his the captains of the, of the Thousand Sons. And so it, talks, it says to be conscious of your body growing around you, to have awareness of your brain taking shape as architecture instead of organism, and have discourse with your creator, even as your existence moved from conceptual possibility to tangible reality, had proved too complex to explain who those to those who had not experienced such a uniquely hastened evolution. And I, I mean, you could you could definitely quibble with the writing there, but I was like, <laughs> it, it's, and it's I least, would. <laughs> it's at least trying to uh, engage with something very strange, you know, yes. um, which is which is kind of um, really what or uh, just mention it. Yeah, rather than um, engage particularly with it. Yeah, well, you know, it's at least got a paragraph to it there, rather than just saying <laughs> it was unknowable to yeah. his, his <laughs> brother. I think we can get through this bit a little bit quicker. They're making war on these people called the Shrike. Russ is there, Magnus is there, and Lorgar is there. They're all fighting the same sort of battle. They've fought to, you know, this this central. A castle essentially and yeah. they're all making a combat drop and the um, a Thousand Sons have for the first time started bringing their remembrancers with them um, and have actively started training them in uh, the use of their abilities yeah. uh, and we just see just a to... lot of sort of examples of uh, 
legionary brutality and the use of magic right out in the open this time yeah and there's like a lot of a lot of killing um and and they so that basically this this planet is like it's all peaks like sort of jagged mountain peaks um there's loads of different types of large flying creatures there's like so the human the human like civilization that they're fighting they are all like dressed up as birds and stuff and they ride on other flying creatures some of them um and they live in kind of the usual very elegant um buildings sort of clinging to the side of these mountains with like walkways in between and stuff and like and the the, the scale of the destruction is massive they talk about like you know oh it's just a small battle we only killed like five thousand you know that kind of thing yeah. is the kind of line they come out with here at the space marines um and obviously that's shocking to the remembrancers who are seeing that they, i think the, the point of this battle is almost that the destruction of this world is really easy and they don't spend any time on like the space wolves land in the central hub palace castle whatever it is and pretty much destroy it and we don't even get told about that we just get told they destroy it um I mean, yeah, there's, uh, yeah but there is a, a sort of psychic blast of rage that is sort of more powerful than anybody really know uh, has experienced before but people know it to be like the the battle rage of Lehman Russ the the primarch of the space wolves um, yeah and there's a fair amount of emphasis on how each of the legions is prosecuting the war according to their own you know style of, of fighting and philosophy and stuff like that um but yeah, sorry, Lehman Russ. So yeah, they sense his psychic power. Well, just his aura, I guess. His yeah, presence. I, and there, there is a, a standoff across a bridge between Space Wolves on one side, who want to get to the library of this uh, of this species just to finish finish it off and destroy it, and the Thousand Sons who want to protect it and want to sort of keep the knowledge for themselves. And there is um, a standoff which is sort of really instigated by Magnus, uh, who orders one of his soldiers to, one of the, the Pavoni, the bio people that you were talking about, um, to start like causing seizures and uh, nervous issues and lameness and stuff to the space wolves. And they are like frothing at the mouth and bleeding from their eyes and stuff like that until yes, we learn a little bit more about these um genetic problems that uh the thousand sons have had and clearly continue to have ariman specifically talks about his his brother his brother yeah um so he obviously yeah. died in this way but it's clear like when ariman sees it and it's a hather matt he sees it and they both instantly know what this is that's happening to Haster. So clearly it's something they all know about, they all know the signs of. They all like they all start feeling it themselves within them like within themselves. Um, and to be fair, like very quickly you wouldn't have to know much about it to know that something was wrong. <laughs> true, true. But one of them shouts flesh change you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and um they all are, are like, oh right and they get his helmet off and his head's become all big and stuff. And then he just, and, like, he starts, like, new limbs start, like, bulging out of him. 
and he just turns into essentially an enormous pile of meat that's laughing at them. Yeah, so it's, it says, Haster screamed and Ariman's grip slackened as the horror of Orm's death, so that's his brother, surged from the locked room of his memory. Haster threw them off, his expanding body swollen with grotesquely misshapen musculature, encrusted growths, mutant appendages and slithering ropes of wet matter. That's great. Um, yeah, so he just, he's equal full on full on warp monster Ugh, slithering ropes of wet matter is horrible mm. but it's all right because lehman russ um makes him explode so <laughs> it's fine <laughs> and they're, they're like, <laughs> and like uh magnus is a bit like oh he just you know he just needed a a, a shoulder to cry <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've got the lucas aid <laughs> Then for the, I think I think for the first time, we've got some fucking poetry cited. There was a little uh, verse oh, yeah. from Ralph Waldo Emerson cited in this book. Um, yeah, it doesn't. Well, yeah, it yeah. doesn't work. It's a good poem, but it doesn't. It doesn't work. I did, I just, yeah. I, just, I thought this was so clunky and pretentious and just not necessary at all. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was just like. A, a very bad example of the whole like uh, thing from old Terra, blah yeah. blah. Yeah. Um, uh, um, Lehman Russ stalks across the the bridge, and he is not happy at how his uh, legion have been treated. Um, and he's going to exact some sort of revenge on Magnus. Lorgar teleports down again. Teleportation in the nick of time, just when things work, and. Um, starts talking about he doesn't want his brothers fighting it's all about the emperor blah 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 and um gives them both a bit of a mouthful and russ says um i'll go now but this isn't over we'll we'll meet again and we'll talk about this yeah and that's where we left it for this episode yep what did you think of it so i really enjoyed i really enjoyed it it just like was like this is the you know this is the the good stuff that we read these for just like all different kinds of magic um so you uh, yeah you, some, you would prefer you prefer sort of um a magical legion rather than like uh, a grisly grisly tales of like heroic sword fighting and stuff you like a bit of uh, well, i like both but i just i just thought it was like it was nice uh just nice it was a nice change of pace <laughs> it's a really bad word <laughs> but it was it was a it's just um, nice <laughs> it's just pleasant. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I just thought it was an, uh, it was fun to just have that all kind of just unleashed in a legion that just had all of this shit and was doing it all the time. And you know what like you say before, rather than being like, "Oh, that guy might have a, some you know some potential," you know, some potential for magic powers. This was like, yeah, they're all doing it. They all do it all the time. They some of them clean their weapons with it, and they you know it's. It's just all this shit going on, and then there's the space, and there's a really good like contrast of gimmicks between the space wolves and the yeah the the thousand suns, the everything like yeah a lot of the stuff described here, even though it was like some of it is not necessarily new or particularly surprising, but it was all just done well. Like the the description of the mountain was pretty vivid. The um the description of the this bird civilization at the end living in the mountains was pretty vivid i thought and and yeah like the characters on the whole were were you know i thought Ariman 
did the job of being someone who's a fairly sympathetic yeah you know, someone you could be fairly sympathetic with and, and and especially like that thing with his brother you know imbued him with a bit more of a relatable quality than some of the space marines get in these books yeah i i wonder if the fact that the the legion had these different cults within it just allowed far more differentiation in the characters within the legion you know we we always complain that the space marines just are always so archetypal and similar that the fact that these cults were out in the open and had like different magical characters um, yeah allowed differentiation to happen even if it wasn't at a, on a particularly human level it was provided at least a bit of interest yeah it was a it was an easy shorthand yeah to differentiate them without having to actually depict good characters you know like <laughs> like you know what i mean though like just rather than having to like be write a literary character which these books are not about it would just give you a way of yeah having distinction and difference that was easy to do with through those powers um what um, i would have liked uh, because i think it's a good idea i think it's a really great idea what a, a little bit more and that's not to say it doesn't happen in the second half of the book is a little bit more on the um how the standing of like the corvidae versus the pavoni and stuff that seems to be based on fluctuations within the warp r rather than any action of the legion is that is that right i think so but then it does have sort of i think it does affect the hierarchy of the legion i think it's like it's generated from the war but it does reflect it does sort of have an effect on their standing in the legion like there was a there's a bit which um yeah sorry i'm about to mention norbert elias but there's a bit um where uh they're they're talking about inside magnus's pyramid oh yeah no, i i i thought of this whenever i <laughs> I, I thought I thought so, of a certain Jean Coustin whenever, <laughs> whenever. So they're all they all have to stand at different points in relation to Magnus, and there's like a very careful calibration of someone's status based on like where they're positioned, how close they are to Magnus, how what other people they're close to, and and all this. And it's as if Magnus all like does this very carefully. And it's just this was uh, very reminiscent of. A thing in the book about the court of Louis the Fourteenth that me and Neil have read as when we were at university or read bits of, um, and uh, talked about in in one of our classes. And so he he well, I can't remember. I don't know if this was if it was actually called this in the book, but our uh, tutor called it the the courtly art of observation, where like uh, so this idea that like in this court environment where there's so much sort of power and status to be had and so much competition for it that like the slightest gesture from the king could kind of you know send your status rising or falling uh significantly you know and that it just kind of reminded me of and that it, and it re required everyone involved to be to be trained in the art of observing everything uh, yeah but also it's like it's a fascinating thing because it, it gives the the king or or the primarch in this case it gives them so much so many tools to work with because you can give yeah. away nothing but if it looks good then and if it's like a little bit more than what had been previously then yeah. it's seen as this big thing it's a fascinating fascinating thing yeah 
It's uh, yeah, and then it's kind of because it kind of the one of the ideas behind it is like that it creates a demand amongst the nobility just for things that are actually the king like creates value in things that he can very easily dispense like just you know like a, a look or a, a physical hand a gesture physical space near near that the king or near the prime yeah so so people compete for that i mean obviously there's still one like sort of material gain as well but like that that becomes something of value in its own right but anyway yeah it's an interesting concept and um what was that book called again of... elias yeah the elias book uh, the court society that's right um, but there's also the the civilizing process is, is kind of closely related to that. When we, talks about the yeah we we should do a, a, a bonus Norbert Elias episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or maybe a, uh, a, a Johann Heusinger episode as well. Yeah, Hor- Horus Heresy through the prism of Elias and Heusinger. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. We'll have to do that. Um, but yeah, that's no, that no. We we, the, we don't. We don't. We don't, and we won't. Uh, so that's, but yeah, plot-wise, that sets us up for part two pretty nicely. Did you have anything to add about the? No, uh, that's it for me. I just want to uh, thank everybody again for listening. Um, we realize uh, that this is an incredibly difficult time for people in lockdown. And also, nobody's commuting, so nobody listens to podcasts. So, so if you listen to this one. Uh, thank you I guess (laughs) Um, so uh, yeah that's it just uh, thanks everyone for listening spread the word as always you know that but uh, yeah yep horrorsheretics at gmail.com and we will be back in two weeks time thank you see ya see ya